0: Ever wonder why 95% of leads do not convert? Why cold call rates are down and prospects don't open our emails? Why our responses of robocalls calls and implanting pixels to track user interaction, mostly without permission, is backfiring spectacularly? Well, that's what we intend to find out here in the Buyer Side Chat Podcast. There are scores of podcasts about selling, but most miss the shift that has come upon the buying-selling process. The initiative has since moved from the supply to the demand side. The Buyer Side Chat, your podcast of record for B2B buying, talks to actual buyers, persons, not personas, in the quest to understand the real buyer's journey, their trials and tribulations, challenges and outcomes they're striving for. Welcome to the Buyer Side Chat. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Just a quick intro to PitchLink. Every discussion on B2B selling will bring this out at some point or the other. Sellers need to build trust with the buyer. However, we do not have the organic time that is required to build trust because that is how it is done naturally. Instead, we look for shortcuts. Unfortunately, there is no shortcut to building trust. Pitching gives you the ability to demonstrate respect and thus take the first step towards building trust. This begins with indicating to the prospect that you are taking a step back from one of the most aggressive techniques that has become the norm in B2B selling, surreptitious tracking of buyer behavior and invading the privacy of the prospect without consent. Pitchlink puts your prospect in charge of her data, including protecting the data of those she gets onto your pitch link. You do not get to see who the new persons on the thread are, although you see that it's indeed been shared by the recipient to whom you sent your pitch flow in the first place. Thousands of pitches are sent out on our platform bears testimony to this fact. Engagement went up with shared communication when prospects learned firsthand that senders and vendors will not see their activity and interaction with the received narrative without their prospects clear and definite consent. To build trust, pitch link it. Now, on to our guest for today. What has changed in the procurement processes in B2B companies and what challenges are they facing in the complex post-COVID supply chain world? Tanya Siri, founder and chairperson of Procurious, our guest today will shed light just on that.
1: How did the procurement profession um, handle COVID? Well, the answer is, is really well. I mean, most people's supply chains were disrupted um, and we didn't have to do some research to work that out. We all knew that, didn't we, when we went to the supermarket. But we did some research um, really peak COVID sort of June last year called the How Now Report and really people... The profession was amazing. I mean, they were able to, you know, fix disruptions pretty quickly, find alternate suppliers, and really it was pretty seamless. And, and we asked them, well, you know, are you proud of your efforts? And most of them were quite chuffed and impressed with their ability to respond to such a big disruption.
0: Tanya is one of the most global influential members of the procurement and supply chain profession. She is the founder and chairman of Procurious, the world's first online social network designed specifically for procurement and supply chain professions. Procurious is a culmination of Sir's long-held belief that improved resources are critical to the progression of the procurement profession globally. Tanya has been named Influencer of the Year by Supply Chain Dive and recognized by IBM as a new way to engage futurists. Now, onto this insightful conversation with Tanya. Tania, welcome to the show. I'm uh, so happy to have you with us today and and to learn from, from what you are seeing as this sea change that is happy, happening in the buying procurement space, right? Um, mm. uh, so so tell us a bit about uh, about your work. I mean, last 20 years, you have had a journey and, of course, uh, about Procurious.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, no, I've had a fantastic um Career. I've really enjoyed it. I first part of my career was in marketing, hmm. and during that time, I worked for the Walt Disney Company in London for their international television department. That was super fun, and then I just got really interested, actually, in B two B selling. So I worked for Alcoa, the aluminum company, and worked in their industrial marketing department, and uh, did my MBA in the states at Penn State. And then decided really to go out on my own and um, start my own business. I come from a long line of small business people. Apparently it's kind of genetic. (laughs) And um, you're more likely to start your own business if your family's been in business apparently. So it was a natural journey for me very difficult. It's not easy uh, starting your own business and and I've really now started three businesses. So like a best practices, procurement business, a recruitment business because mm. I was getting lots of inquiries about who to hire and then most recently Procurious. Uh, I was living in London for five years mm. and started Procurious while I was there.
0: Right, right. I remember uh, when we were talking, you said that you needed to go back to London to do some work, so obviously you have a deep connection there. So so tell me, why did you think of creating this community? I mean, it's, it's, it's very well uh, represented, 38,000 people. Why a community? Why a space which is for professionals to come and talk? Why not do it on LinkedIn? Why not do it somewhere else, which is already there?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, look, I think it really started um, when I was wo- working in North America and uh, for our co We used to bring all the business units together, you know, 28 divisions, the CPOs from each division, just when we first started leverage buying really globally. And... You could see the value that those CPOs got out of those meetings, even mm. though they begrudgingly came along because headquarters wanted them to be there. Um, they got so much out of it, you know, the best practice sharing, comparing notes, best, you know, I guess mm. benchmarking, and working together on, you know, leverage buying contracts. So that was probably the first time. Then when I moved back to Australia, I started doing that with CPOs from different companies and saw that value. Then when I moved to London, I thought, how do you scale this globally? And, of course, that's when social media was really kicking off and we saw the success of LinkedIn. And really Procurious is a lot like LinkedIn, but it's for a narrow vertical. And that's because on LinkedIn there's so much noise. You know, Mm. you can easily get lost. But if you go to Procurious, it's all about procurement and supply chain. So uh, you know you're in the right place because that's all we talk about And, you know, you can connect with others, you can see what they're doing, you can have discussions, watch events, uh, participate in podcasts, research reports. It's a knowledge hub.
0: Tell me a little about how you got started with Procurious. I mean, it's not easy to get many people involved because everybody is in multiple networks and there are all kinds of networks. So, So it's difficult to get people in. So what did you do, really?
1: Look, we've taken... You know, it's certainly taken us seven years to get to 38,000 and I guess I've just taken a very, what I would call, honest and legitimate approach. Mm -hmm. We haven't really spent that much on marketing the brand, but what we have done is invested a lot in content. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we publish a daily blog. We're constantly talking. We have these big ideas summits. So I think, you know, what we have now is a really strong foundation that we can build other services on top of. But I'd say it's a very authentic kind of... uh, There's not too many, um, you know, bells and whistles with our marketing. However, I think we are seen to be very innovative. Um, It definitely is a fresh face for procurement and supply chain. Um, And I think people have found that refreshing. So
0: starting with Alacoa, where you were into B2B selling, too procurious which is on the other so to say the other side of the table I don't really believe it's a it's a table which has two sides I, I imagine it as more like a, a a round table around which everybody is sitting nobody's against each other and so on uh, yeah but what change have you seen in the buyer and the buying process because this is the time when this changes I mean I, I was talking to somebody that early indications were out as early as 1984-85 time frame when yep. signals were coming that this this control that the sort of the sellers had on the process was actually starting to wane and uh, yeah. and and the buyers were sort of getting into the saddle uh, more uh, securely. So so this change that you have seen actually very very closely through multiple roles. Tell us about that.
1: Well. um you know, I always uh, was uh, entertained by our CFO, Adam Alcoa, who used to say, what chance have we got? You know, here we've got the salesman from this big technology company coming in who's on half a million dollars a year and I'm paying my procurement people, you know, $100,000 a year. You know, the sales guy's always going to win, you know. Mm-hmm. I. And there was this real realisation that we had to invest in much in it as our procurement capability. And I think we've seen a lot of progress with, uh, you know, the upskilling of procurement. So I guess back in the late 90s, you know, we we were really just starting to leverage, weren't we, sort of mid-90s, and really starting to aggregate spend. So, you know, those were the early days where we kind of realised, oh, hang on, you know, A plus B equals, well, 8.5. And, um, you know, then we looked at the marketplaces, reverse auctions, and, you know, there was a lot of focus on price, wasn't there? And, you know, trying to look at efficiency as well probably after that. Once we looked at price, we looked at the cost to buy some of these things. But, I mean, I think COVID has seen, you know, everything flip on its head and I don't know if you're happy for me to talk about that right now or if that's further in your conversation, but I think it's a really interesting time to be selling to procurement Um, and, uh, you know, really a lot of our paradigms are being challenged or turned on the head.
0: Right. So,
1: so so, let's touch upon
0: it briefly and we may come back to it. What is COVID doing to the procurement process, according to you?
1: Well, look, I'm not sure uh, we can talk about the processes, but I mean, I think... The whole strategy, you know, if we if we start, well, how did the procurement profession um, handle COVID? Well, the answer is really well. I mean, most people's supply chains were disrupted um, and we didn't have to do some research to work that out. We all knew that, didn't we, when we went to the supermarket. But we did some research um, really peak COVID sort of June last year called the How Now Report and really people the profession was amazing I mean they were able to you know fix disruptions pretty quickly find alternate suppliers and really it was pretty seamless and and we asked them when well, you know are you proud of your efforts and most of them were quite chuffed and impressed with their ability to respond to such a big disruption so I think that's You know, that's an interesting finding that actually they were well-organised and had alternative sources of supply. Um, We didn't really have the cash crisis that we thought we would have, so, you know, the liquidity issue wasn't a big deal. But I think the big aha moment was, you know, everyone started talking force majeure force majeure, but it turned out to be really nothing because what people really relied on was their relationships And, you know, the contracts were sort of almost put to the side and it was really the relationships that worked and that that really solved all the problems. And I think that's something that we really have to focus on from the buy and supply side is, um, and I interviewed Sally Geyer from the World Contracting uh, Organization and she said, you know, contracts are always written for the divorce, not the marriage. (laughs) And I think we right. have to focus more on, you know, how are we going to make this work? And, you know, I know in some of your conversations, um, you know, you've talked about, you know, the plethora of stakeholders in a buying organisation. And I think that's one of the things that both sides have to do is really map out the organisation, work out the roles and what the communications plan is. So I think relationships are, are very important moving forward.
0: That's an interesting take because I was about to ask you what were they doing in the past that is pre-COVID which allowed the procurement professionals to come out sort of unscathed and <laughs> and kept kept the world's you know supply chain going, right? So so it is it is not that I mean you were you, you had disruptions but you didn't sort of lose out on getting yeah. things that you needed. Right? Uh, and I think yeah,
1: maybe, you know, if you're taking a negative view, you could say we're fairly pessimistic. Unless <laughs> uh, <laughs> negative view, we're optimistic. But, you know, we're always planning for the contingency. You know, that's what a lot of procurement is about, is just making sure that you can deliver. So, really, you know, this put us to the test, really, is hey, all those plans you had and those nightmares that you uh, thought might happen one day have actually happened and they were ready to respond. I think procurement professionals think of themselves and they probably actually are great judges of characters. If you think about how many people come and sell to a procurement professional each year, they do tend to get yeah. quite good at, you know, assessing characters and, and who they trust. And who they're going to rely on and I think that this really showed that the profession built the relationships that it needed to and and we ready for the contingencies. The other sort of poignant question we asked our members was you know were you frozen by the challenge you know the enormity of it all and and most of them said no and and actually a large number said that actually COVID has increased. 60% said they're more interested in procurement now than they were were Pre-COVID, so it's actually really revitalised people. That's dropped off a little bit this year, but uh, we can talk about that later too, if you like.
0: Let's let's go back a bit on what you just mentioned. You you mentioned two very important words, and I think, possibly in sales and in sales literature, these are the two most abused words. Also, uh, one is relationship; the other is trust. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. So so tell me, I mean, if if we did well during COVID as procurement professionals because yeah. relationships were there and they were actually yeah. relationships which, which worked, which, uh, which one could rely on. How, yeah. were this, how were these relationships built? What is the secret to building a relationship which is uh, between a vendor and the, and the buyer?
1: Well, it's spending time together, isn't it? And I think that's going to be the challenge moving forward. We're all surviving. You know, we're all trading on the relationships that we built before COVID. And I think this is where it's going to almost reach a time limit if we're all, you know, continue to be stuck in our homes and not able to actually go and visit people, visit plant sites. I think it's going to become quite challenging because As I said, I think we're all still trading on our pre-COVID relationships, you know, getting together, you know, going, looking through operations, looking at ways we can develop new products. Um, So, yeah, for the time being, I think it's about you know, what we're doing now, staying online, talking to people, staying close, keeping the lines of communication open. But I think it, it will get to a point that that will be strained and I think it's the same for recruitment. You know, okay, you might successfully onboard someone, but how are you actually going to build that relationship when there's no sort of, you know, intermittent sort of casual time? Um, you know, I think it's going to become challenging. But for the time being... Everyone's talking, everyone's communicating, and of course we've got technology so te- technology will be a huge enabler and i think it's it's interesting when you talk about the cio when you think about remember when we used to all be worried about data centers mm. data centers and you la- latency and you know all these sort of things um, and now of course it's all in the cloud but that doesn't mean that the cto's well, sorry cto or cio is redundant yeah and i think it's the same for procurement just because we're going to have autonomous procurement ai whatever it doesn't mean the role of the cpo goes away it just becomes more strategic it's a different thing
0: one question that i have is how does one actually build the trust that is so vital in this relationship
1: yes. well look it's you know spending time together i think it's very important to make sure you're aligned but to me one of the key tenements of trust is doing what you say you're going to do. Now that's been really challenged when demand and supply has been all over the place, hasn't it? You know, like and I think that's about honesty. So, you know, that's another important thing with trust is keeping those lines of communication saying, I don't know what's happening yeah. <laughs> next, you know. Last week yeah. they were eating the plain biscuits, now they're eating the chocolate biscuits, you know. <laughs> because it's it's As I said, both supply and demand have spiked, Mm. you know, like we've never seen before. So, I mean, we're all in the same boat and I think that's, you know, the keeping the lines open and being honest about what's happening, even if you don't know what's happening. And I think that's a big thing about leadership now. A lot of us don't know the answers, Mm. you know, and so we're all looking for them, but you've got to know the right questions and um, be asking the right questions and, and seeking out what the truth is. Um, so it's a different, it's, it's not a sort of command and control leadership style anymore. It's more of a, you know, a sort of servant or more of a knowledge-seeking leadership model. Um, but I think it opens up huge opportunities for sellers to really understand the situation that corporate buyers are in now and really partner with them. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of these things are about transparency and, I'm, you know, I'm happy to talk about some of the things that I think buyers will be looking from to from their partners moving forward.
0: Sure, let's get into that. It's time for a short break. Stay with us. After the break.
1: So I think what today's buyers are most worried about are these supply chain disruptions so they want to know that their suppliers actually know what's happening in their tier two tier three four five supply chains so that if they are geographically sort of concentrated somewhere or there's some weak Link in the chain, that the buyer, you know, that, that there's openness about that and that the buyer understands. So if they're sitting there and they see there's been a tsunami somewhere, they go, oh, that's going to impact me.
0: You are listening to a Business Podcast Network original. Podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity, which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy, it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in that is bpn at bizcast.in C A S T. dot I N, Business Podcast Network, podcasts end to end. Welcome back. I'm shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for the Bar Side Chat and founder of Pitchling, the Bar Seller Engagement Platform. Let's dive right back into this episode from where we left it. What what is it that? What is the current mindset, and what are they going to look forward to?
1: Yeah. Well, look visibility and transparency which kind of you know you could wrap up into honesty but it's a very different thing I mean I guess visibility is pretty binary isn't it you've either got it or you haven't so I think what today's buyers are most worried about are these supply chain disruptions so they want to know that their suppliers actually know what's happening in their tier two tier three four five supply chains so that if they are geographically sort of concentrated somewhere or there's some weak link in the chain that the buyer you know that that there's openness about that and that the buyer understands so if they're sitting there and they see there's been a tsunami somewhere they go oh that's going to impact me or you know if they have or only sourcing from China, and then there becomes some sort of uh, political or you know geopolitical risk there. Then that's a problem too. So I think that transparency and being able to show your buyer that you you can see the levels in your supply chain and you know where the weaknesses are, that you've got contingencies. So. Because they might not have the technology but if you've got the technology and the visibility, that will give them a high level of trust and I think that visibility. So that would be my number one uh, selling point now if I was going in to sell to a buyer is to say, if you work with us, you'll be able to see, um, you know, if there's a supply chain disruption but it also goes on to these social issues, these ESG issues which are, really top of the CEO's agenda now. So, you know, it goes to modern slavery, it goes to, um, you know, Indigenous supply, supply diversity, local sourcing is going to be another big issue but potentially for another reason. But, um, you know, I would definitely be going in and saying if you work with us, you've got the visibility and this is how we can respond if there's an issue because a lot of people were caught not being able to communicate. They didn't even know who's in their supply chain and let alone communicate, make sure they're okay or organize alternate sources of supply. So I think that's a big selling point right now if I was, uh, <laughs> if I was selling in.
0: Right, right. So, so this whole thing about vendor development that was sort of part of the procurement uh, role would have mapped this into the equation. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that that's been one of the um, quick supplier onboarding, quick identification of suppliers has been something. And, and I think everyone did it well, but I do think it's top of mind now, uh, particularly with so many people changing their supply strategy. So this is one of these paradigm shifts that I was talking about. If everyone was sourcing from one part of the world, they're now diversifying and a lot of people are reshoring as you know, but a lot of people are also looking about local sourcing. So, you know, when I say local sourcing, I mean, you know, within 100 kilometres of the plant, you know, if you had an ice cream plant, you'd be looking for ingredients nearby and using that as a selling tool uh, in your marketing to your end con- consumer. So um, I think, yeah, people are definitely looking looking for new sources of supply. And if I was a big guy selling into another big company, if I had those local supplies, I would definitely be offering that as an option. Um, you know, we all know the benefits of local supply, yeah. labour, healthy communities, but also there's a real um, sustainability um, angle there. It's more than an angle. It's a reality is that you've got less, uh, less air miles, less food miles.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is what was happening in food and it's sort of coming to to the rest of it. So my question is that, is this a sign of the reversal of globalization, which is basically riding on the back of reduction of cost?
1: Well, I probably have a different view and maybe mine's aspirational, but I actually thinking we're seeing a huge move towards value and it depends how you define value. Um, But I think You know, every CEO, CFO is being hammered by investors about their ESG performance right now and so that's, that's something that every seller out there should be bringing to the table and mm. saying, look, you know, here's our sustainability credentials. This is what we're doing. This is the visibility or, you know, uh, this is what we can bring to you. Here's our carbon offset program or whatever it is. Mm. They they need to be have that forefront um, in their discussions with corporate buyers because, once again, then as a partnership, they can take that forward to the C-level. But I don't always think there has to be a big compromise on cost. We saw this when we first started using social enterprises. People used to say, oh, it's the right thing to do. But actually, most social enterprises now are really cost competitive. And I think that we'll, we'll see the same. I know with local sourcing, a lot of buyers I've been talking to have been pleasantly surprised that buying local actually hasn't cost them a lot more. And in fact, if you look at the total cost, which is lead times you know holding inventory and what have you it's actually been quite a good option so it might be a good time for us all to look at you know the real cost of of doing the right thing and um, and look at what's happening and of course the cost of a disruption well we we know how much that costs now don't we
0: (laughs) so tanya it appears that you are quite passionate about this point so let's let's break it down a little more common wisdom is that if you go to a distant place say in in our context china you can buy things cheap the basic premise was that you could do it cheap and yeah, you can sell it cheap
1: yeah
0: right how how does that sort of map into what you are saying that if you're localizing trying to localize the production and by the way that cheap component came primarily from wages wages right yes. so yep. you basically buy. China could pay one tenth of what you'd pay, possibly somebody in Brisbane or in uh, or or in, in Toronto or wherever, and and that's why the cost difference, and uh, the carbon footprint, and the delay in shipment, and the advance planning, and you know whatever, all those costs sort of still made it viable, right? So that was the logic. So according to you, localization is actually very competitive. Would you like to sort of elaborate on that?
1: Well I think people are looking more at the total cost of ownership and the total value. Say so for example if I can if I've got a mining community in a remote area there's yes I could save a few pennies here and there on you know different products or services if I imported them from overseas but if I can manufacture it locally I can say to my employee Oh, well, your partner can get a job in our area. So we're actually a more attractive, you know, um, employment proposition and actually they need the labour. The labour is worth more to them than the penny on the washer, Hmm. not that you can make washers locally. So I think a lot of companies are looking at the holistic, the big picture here and saying, well, hang on, I need to create local employment so that I'm seen as an employer of choice People can move here, one family member can work at the mine, the other family member can get a job in town versus, oh, well, really there's nothing for your partner to do here and there's no schools and there's no... So there's that example. Then there's also the benefit of supporting, you know, previously marginalised groups and the value that that can bring and, that, and strengthen a community as well. So I really do think people are wake up now to to the total cost of um, ownership, if you like, Um, and, you know, stock prices too now are being determined on, well, how environmentally sustainable was it for you to fly that from a foreign country out here when there's someone right next door who's making it who wouldn't have used any fuel to get So, you know, there's a lot of factors at play here, and I think that's what makes it such an interesting time to be in procurement and supply and to be selling into them because these are really complex decisions people are making. And it was almost easy when we were just like price times volume equals X. Now it's about what is the total impact of this? You know, these are multi-variable decisions that, um, yeah. you know, that we actually do need AI to help us make these decisions. That's what I was joking. Actually, the more human we become, the more we're going to need technology because these are really complicated decisions that need a lot of input. Um to make the right decision and i haven't even talked about modern slavery in
0: there right i know i know that's that's a big one and 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 and, and i think we should at some point do have a chat on that uh, yeah. because uh, because well that's the purpose of platforms like these right so that's where we uh, we we talk about this so so yeah. going back to your point if i am trying to sell to a procurement professional today i'm trying to sell into a big business today what should be my positioning? How do I, how do I position my brand uh, if, if I believe that I don't have existing relationships? So if you know me and you trust me, then it's pretty simple uh, because I would have done that job earlier. But today, yep. when you are possibly meeting me for the first time, what is it yep. that I'm supposed to do?
1: Well, needless to say, price, quality, supply need to be, you know, you've got to be in the game. I mean, there's no use going into a big company where you know that your product or service isn't going to make the grade. You don't have the distribution. So yeah. let's put that aside. Let's say, all things being equal, that your competitor and you have the same thing. I would totally be talking about what we've been talking about. I'll be talking about how much visibility you've got on your supply chain and how much control that you've got if there is a disruption or you find out there's a problem with modern slavery that you can change. So I think that would be the number one thing that I would be selling right now if my product and service was equal and what have you. And then I'd be talking about you know, my ESG initiatives and what we're doing to reduce our carbon footprint, I'd be showing examples of how committed my sea level is to that. And then I'd be going right through the 17 (laughs) UN, uh, you know, sustainability uh, development goals and talking about your commitment to modern slavery because it it is one of the most surprising things of COVID, I think, that we've had like this earth-shattering experience But we're still even, well, if not even more committed to these higher level goals. Don't you think it's fantastic, you know, sustainability, modern slavery? It would have been so easy for us just to be consumed about supply and price. But the sustainability conversation is almost, you know, drowning out COVID now. So it's a great gift, if you like, of COVID in a way that we've really had a wake-up call um, about People, planet, and and a little bit of profit. So
0: I'm curious. I mean, when you are talking to you talk to procurement professionals every day, what is making yeah. what is making this shift in heart? Is it is it uh, is it real or is it it has become imperative because the customers are demanding it?
1: Well, I also talked to a lot of CFOs, so mm-hmm. we've got a CFO roundtable as well, mm-hmm. and it's coming from consumers. You know, and stockholders, that's where all this concern about ESG is coming from. Is that, you know, people are voting with their investment dollars and Mm. and their grocery dollars. They want, and, you know, if you, we have a lot of, uh, we've got a young man, Jenk Oz, who talks, from Thread Media and he's sort of a Gen Z, and this is the way the next generation is going to buy. I mean mm. they're looking at labels, they're looking at your footprint. So it's really coming from the source. It's coming from <laughs> your ultimate customers, investors mm. and then everyone else is responding. So it's not just procurement on its own, um, you know, going off and doing this but I think that they will welcome a conversation Um that that leads on some of these issues and gives them you know the ability to sleep at night right you know we're not just a sole supplier out of you know one country we've got multiple sources as we know who's in our supply chain and yeah
0: yeah so how does a seller today you mentioned about mapping the organization earlier in the in this in this discussion how yeah. does one go about doing that how open are procurement professionals uh, if I'm coming to sell to you, how open would I expect you to be in telling me, hey shubhanjan you know what, although I'm talking to you, I have five other people including my CEO, my CFO and whoever else who is going to be part of the decision. I mean, how does one go about doing this?
1: Well, you absolutely have to sell throughout the whole organisation. And I guess old school, you know, when we're back in the 90s and the turn of the millennial, the CPO really wanted to be the gatekeeper. So, mm. you know, old selling would have been very nervous about the CPO making sure they had them on side. Mm. But I think, you know, the way this is all heading is that the CPO is really the facilitator of what their stakeholders want. So it's not up to the CPO to make the decision about what a division wants. They're making the decision, but the CPO is the commercial facilitator. We're the professional negotiators, the people that know how to structure the contracts, you know, and how to manage supplier relationships. But this isn't our decision. It's often, uh, you know, cross-functional. Often there's sort of a committee decision on buying these. So I think the smart buyer really does find out who are the key Um, you know, decision makers and, you know, it takes a long time, doesn't it, to map a strategic account and, you know, probably one or two years to land these huge deals. So you certainly have to play the long game. And I think that's one of the great things about social media these days. You really can follow and learn a lot about what companies are caring about um, and all these ESG issues and things like that because people are talking about it so much. So, you know, if I was... um, a senior salesperson, I would be tracking all my key accounts on social and being able to have those conversations about the things that, you know, they care about. So, um, yeah, I think it's critical to map the organisation but, you know, I think the CPO is a very important, but just one of your um, key stakeholders. I mean, also they're the one you will probably be negotiating with, so you mm-hmm. probably want to keep them on side. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, they'll be they'll be told, "Look, I want this guy, and if it's not that guy, I'll settle for this one." Now you go do the deal. So. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to remember to keep the CPO on side and their team, obviously, because they'll be the one you're negotiating with. <laughs>
0: right, right. So so to, to wrap up this uh, this discussion, if people have to take away something from this show as sort of a guidance as to how the new procurement professional or the new buyer is buying, what would you say are the main pointers?
1: I would say help them take a compelling story to the C-level on why they should buy from you. And that would be around visibility of your supply chain and it would be your ESG credentials. So they're the two things that I think um, would be your selling points, all things being equal, Mm -hmm. um, and and partner with the CPO to sell that story throughout the organisation.
0: Fantastic. The Buyer Site Chat is brought to you by Pitchlink, the Buyer-Seller Engagement Platform. Pitchlink enables high-quality interactions between buyers and sellers through presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create personalized sales presentations and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive, buyer-qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversation talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intrusion call us on 650 847 5884 that is 650 847 5884 it was wonderful uh, chatting today i i really i really appreciate because you know sometimes we need discussions like this to open up certain areas where we are not paying attention Yet they are paying, playing a huge role in what the outcome is going to be, right? Uh, so I, I think I think there is a lot more I would love to talk to you about, which obviously we cannot we cannot uh, sort of cover in this this uh, single uh, session. But I would I would really be happy to have you back and and talk to us more. That uh, there is so much we can we can talk.
1: that would be my pleasure it was lovely speaking with you today i hope that i helped someone out there
0: (laughs) absolutely we have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes featuring great conversations unraveling in depth how the real buyers buy stay tuned thank you for being with us today on the buyer side chat this is the podcast of record for the buyer side journey and those who know that's the journey that matters We hope this conversation helped you with insights that you can go and apply right now to your own value transaction process. See you in the next episode of the BuyerSide Chat.